37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. What's up, everybody? This is episode 163 of Pixelated Paranormal. And that's all the intro I have, because there really is no intro, because uh, Preston, you put the show together, and I just added my two cents at the top. <laughs> <laughs> How's everybody doing? Eh. Another day, another day. Another day, another dollar. Huh. Just chilling. Oh, we did a lame. 13 right. Nightmares this morning, and just played some Sea of Thieves with our buddy Corey, and nothing else has been going on. Oh, chilling. Nice. Cool, man. I'm uh, currently drawing Henrietta from Evil Dead for my seventh uh, creepy cinema creep, classic cinema creep uh, portrait for October. So that's what I'm up to. I like the one you put out today. Oh, yeah, Mm. the stuff. Yeah. Yeah, 13 Nightmares. Uh, It should be back. This episode will drop, what, Friday the 9th? So the day before 13 Nightmares comes back. So that'll be very, very exciting. Well, there is no real way to kind of intro or segue into today's topic because it kind of goes all over the place. So I'm just going to jump into a weird story that I had read earlier today, in fact. Have you guys ever heard of the volcano in Mexico called Popo Catapetl? Mm, nope. Cool name. No, Preston, I'm kind of surprised you hadn't heard of it, but that's cool. Whatever. <laughs> so Coco Catapetl. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> amateur. Right. Popocatapetl is a volcano in Mexico that has long been a hotbed for strange and unusual activity like UFO sightings, even though it's a highly active volcano. So now a mountain rescue team claims that it's witnessed giant creatures climbing up the slopes of the mountain faster than any other human or human-like creature could possibly do. The volcano is located in the states of Mexico, Puebla and Morelos in central Mexico. At 17,802 feet high, it's the second highest peak in Mexico. UFOs have been reported frequently in the area, with some witnesses seeming to see them either entering or leaving the volcano itself. Doctor Who shit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In a recent TV interview, a gentleman by the name of Guillermo Vidalis, also known as Hurricane Vidalis, said that the mountain rescue crews on Popocatapetl have seen humanoid creatures measuring about eight and a half feet tall at an altitude of over 13,000 feet up. They said they've seen them on more than one occasion, and the beings appear to be very thin and brown without wearing any visible clothing or gear. Yeah. And they said what's... <laughs> I thought you were going to say, Gamo. <laughs> That's a good one, too. But what's strange is they seem to demonstrate amazingly fast speeds and skills while hiking up the side of the mountains. They said, once we saw one of these individuals climb up the glacier within 10 minutes, a stretch that we would linger and take about three to four hours to climb being experienced climbers. They have amazing agility. In addition to the photographs, Videla says the teams have found footprints in the area and the footprints don't resemble humans at all. He said the footprints are very large, and the part corresponding to where a heel would be leaves a hole, something that resembles a claw, which apparently serves them like a um, propulsive support. 
that sort of heel or claw would potentially help propel them through snow and ice faster and more effectively. So almost something like they could stick into, you know, the snow and kind of get a grip and then squat and kick off of. Mm -hmm. So what are these creatures? Are they aliens from one of the UFOs seen in the area? Relatives of the Sasquatch? Perhaps they dwell in the inner earth around the volcano. But whatever they are, the Popocatapetl may not be happy with these creatures or the creatures have been seen because according to Mexico's National Disaster Prevention Center, the volcano erupted 28 times in less than 24 hours back on New Year's Eve of 2015. Could you imagine that day? You'd think the fucking world was ending. <laughs> I know. No kidding, huh? No, I mean, it, it is active, so it's not uncommon for this thing to go off, but 28 different times in one day. Yeah, one insane. day on New Year's Eve. I mean, come on. <laughs> so the creatures could be exploring mineral veins in the mountain or perhaps beyond the depths of the smoking crater of the volcano. Can maybe there exist a secret complex buildings of infrastructures like a base of operations for some kind of underground dwelling aliens, perchance? Well, I ain't going near that fucking volcano. Find out. <laughs> Dude, Minecraft, baby. Yeah, Minecraft. Well, what's even more strange is the fact that uh, odd mountain climbing humanoids aren't the only thing that's been seen in or around the volcano. Remember those UFOs I mentioned earlier? Well, recently, a white object was earlier spied disappearing into the mouth of the volcano with the sighting captured on a webcam that monitors El Popo, another name for the volcano, for 24 hours round the clock. In the video uploaded to YouTube by Esmeralda Martinez, a white object is seen headed towards the mouth of El Popo near Mexico City and then slipping out of sight, unleashing a host of other theories about this possibly, possibly being aliens using it for a base. The sighting was made on webcams which consistently monitor the volcano. The authenticity of the footage has not yet been verified. Well-known conspiracy theorist Scott C. Waring rushed to make the following post on his ET blog database. He said, This is a great discovery for several UFO around the famous Mexico volcano, Popocatapetl. A dedicated hunter of all things ext extraterrestrial continues to say, One of the UFOs is seen leaving the mouth of the volcano and then shooting straight up into space. Another comes down and enters the mouth of the volcano. Absolute proof of what we UFO researchers already knew. There is an alien base, five to six kilometers below this volcano, an entire alien city of many different species <laughs> living up. together. Come on. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> I love this kind of shit, I but too, I mean, yeah. I'm not even going to put on that fucking tinfoil hat. Jesus. Yeah. Oh, anyway, we need to look up that guy. <laughs> this guy him, loves maybe. it. <laughs> The current claims of El Popo being home to extraterrestrials is not new, as last year a video from YouTube channel UFO Mania contained footage of a bright curved light moving up the side of the volcano before suddenly disappearing. At the time, Waring said this of the sighting. Here's an amazing sighting of a boomerang UFO coming out of a volcano in Mexico. The UFO slowly moves up from the side of the volcano, growing more powerful as it continues to rise and disappear above the volcano. This is 100% proof that there is an alien base five kilometers below this volcano, as many UFO researchers and myself believe. Popo Catapetl, 70 kilometers away from the capital of Mexico City, is the second largest volcano in North America and isn't viewed as a threat by experts who cite its usually dormant nature 
despite its eruption in 2017, and again before that in 2015. In 2017, it sprang to life for the first time since 2000. So it sounds like it's not entirely active, it's just active. Till the aliens fuck with it. They get mad <laughs> you coming snooping around. And they consider being active just shooting, you know, plumes of smoke into the air, mm-hmm. showing you that it's still got some activity inside of it. And it's a long-running folktale that we might dive into again later on in a different episode. But back in the 1960s, people claimed to have seen large balls of light come to the mountains and then giant beings in white robes appearing and then inhabiting the volcano. It's the 60s, dude. Hallucinogens. (laughs) (laughs) God. That's a good point. Do you guys think that, like, aliens do, like, gags? Like, fuck with people? Fuck yeah, I would. If they're anything like Paul, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right, and if they want one of these, (laughs) shit like that, it'd be so good. Yeah, I'd like to hope so. What do you think, Presto? Um, what do I think about what aliens like to fuck with people? Fuck yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't it be funny? They'd be like zooming by on their little saucer ship and they just moon a little <laughs> alien ass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hell yeah. It's pretty good. All right. What do you got oh, for that's... us, Preston? So just what if, and I mean, what if those weren't spaceships that are flying around in that volcano? What if they were airships? Hey, this is your boy Joe Bob, just out here in the woods with my buddy, the Peruvian Australian. We're slapping some peanut butter on some chicken for good old Bigfoot and putting some Big Dobbs beard bomb in my beard. I have to tell you, nothing gets Bigfoot slapping his log against a tree like Dundee Sealer. So go use that promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order. But now listen, that's not why I'm here tonight interrupting the show. I've been told that the boys from Pixelated Paranormal are going to be talking about airships. Now, if you're like me, you'd want to go out with your boomstick and blow that some bitch out the sky. Now I'm here to tell you, if you go boom boom, it's gonna go boom boom bigger than the Hindenburg. If you know what I'm saying. So go get you a cold one and sit back and relax and enjoy tonight's show. <laughs> and I mean this. This is in the notes, but I mean this. What the fuck is an airship? <laughs> <laughs> because again, I picture a dirigible and I admit that I dropped the ball and did zero research on this topic. Um, but I mean, am I imagining this like a blimp or a dirigible? Is that what you mean yeah. by airship or just, I mean, isn't the spaceship an airship? Like the Zeppelins. Yeah. Like Zeppelins, you know, they have propellers, um, you know, as we get into this episode, we'll get more detail by, from eyewitness accounts and you'll just, you know, learn what an airship is. <gasps> Perfect. It's a dirigible. Right, well, professor. <laughs> so... Er- well, take us yep. to school. Buddy. So airships are one of my favorite UFO topics, mostly viewed as steampunk in design from a modern day perspective. And to this day, they still remain a mystery. So how do airships tie in with Sean's uh, giant story that he was going to do but didn't do, but then kind of tied it into giants at the end of his last story? <laughs> well, <laughs> if we head back to episode... Um, it's an old one. I actually couldn't find it, but I know we covered it. It was one of the first ones back when old man Rob recorded with us. We talked about a lost civilization living in the Cheyenne mountains and the reports of people seeing very tall and very bald people using airships as a means of travel to come down from the mountains to interact with modern day society. 
So let's do what we do and play a mulligan and deep dive into this topic and give it the pixelated paranormal justice it deserves. So like Sean said, just what the fuck are these airships that I'm going to talk about? Well, before Roswell and Area 51, before the Wright brothers and the heavier-than-air flying machines, America's attention was seized by reports of a mysterious airship. Mystery airships or phantom airships are a class of of unidentified flying objects best known from a series of newspaper reports originating in the western United States and spreading east during the late 1896 and early 1897 era. Typical airship reports involve nighttime sightings of unidentified lights, but more detailed accounts report ships comparable to a dirigible. Reports of the alleged crewmen and pilots usually describe them as human-looking, although sometimes the crew claimed to be from Mars. It was popularly believed that the mystery airships were the product of some inventor or genius who was not ready to make uh, knowledge of his creation public. For example, Thomas Edison was so widely speculated to be the mind behind the alleged airships that in 1897, he was forced to issue a strongly worded statement denying his responsibility. (laughs) (laughs) By the 1900s, sightings were happening on an international scale. Reports claimed that airships, which looked rather blimpy, were piloted by humanoid beings. Of course, this was an era in which yellow journalism, a.k.a. sensationalist, non-fact-check pieces thrive. That's right, they even had fake news in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And a large amount of airship stories were captured and published in 1919 by American author Charles Hoyt Fort with The Book of the Damned, one of the first comprehensive guides to the anomalous phenomenon that kept so many scientists awake at night and shed light on our own long-burning questions. What were alien sightings like before the UFO mania that gripped the U.S. in the early 50s? This little book of the paranormal solidified Fort's place as science's infant terrible, the world's first ufologist. Now, when was a dirigible first created? Oh, fuck. Who knows? I mean, any idea? I'm thinking it was like 1890s when we first had dirigibles. So, okay, that's interesting. Okay, I have have a theory, but I will, uh, I'll touch on that at the end. Okay. For every five people who read it, four will go insane. There are 28 chapters covering everything from thunderstones to poltergeists, floating turtles, and snakes that fall from the sky. But before <laughs> Fort, before the mystery airship craze, such unexplained phenomenon, phenomenon was usually a product of an and embedded into spirituality and folklore, like the tale of the green children of Vulpit, which we covered in some past episode as well. Maybe even with old Steve this time, I don't remember. But, in case you need a brief refresher, I got you all covered. Boom. The 12th century story of two foreign green-colored children who arrived in the village of Woolpit in Suffolk, England, perplexing the residents with their unknown language and a penchant for eating raw, broad beans. They were mainly seen as evidence of outwardly fairy life, um, you know, because of Celtic beliefs and things like that. But there were whispers mm-hmm. that perhaps the children were of another world. In any case, they inspired the babes in the wood expression that we have today. 
And if we turn the clock back even further, the biblical story of the birth of Jesus starts off with three wise men spotting something mysterious in the sky. That's the uh, thing about the yield UFOs hovering in the, you know, they're the mysterious lights. So wait, the three wise men were essentially the very first chapter of Mufon? Yeah, why not, man? <laughs> the first, <laughs> first contact. The North Star was yeah. a UFO. <laughs> but before the Enlightenment and the rise of science, unexplained sightings were often interpreted as religious phenomenon. A sharp eye can sometimes observe a hovering, glowing mass in historical paintings with religious themes that look surprisingly like flying saucers and modern interpretations of UFO. A 14th century painting, uh, The Crucifixion, depicts what looks like two spaceships. In truth, the, the artist was alluding to the sun and the moon and how the, the day suddenly turned to night when Christ was born. And even Taoist texts allude to flying vehicles of some sort that descend from the heavens. And I included that. Now, that's what's interesting. That painting of the crucifixion to me, the guy inside the you know, the flaming ball, which is supposed to be the sun, uh-huh. I could see that being you know a god of the sun right. or the entity that controls the sun. But that dude flying the moon, that's a fucking spaceship. Yeah, that's spaceship. a spaceship, dog. I'm not saying yeah. it's aliens, I mean, but yeah. it's aliens. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm, it's yeah. aliens. In uh, the 1960s, computer scientist Jacques Vallée, UFO uh, research was recommended by the U.S. Air Force to cadets in training. In 1978, he spoke at the only major United Nations UFO presentation in history on the subject of historical paintings and curious objects depicted in them. He said the following. We're not saying it's proof of alien anything. We're saying there's a phenomenon and it has some of the characteristics of modern phenomenon. You still have to account for differential descriptions because of the changes in the cultures and the changes in the media. Although, which the data has arrived to us, the value of it scientifically is that we can anchor the beginning of the UFO phenomenon into real documented history. Very nice, Steve. So <laughs> you went from Peruvian Australian back yeah. to yeah, I was like, everything. <laughs> <laughs> so why did I bring all this up? Was it just uh, fodder to give the episode some girth? No, I think it shows a good example of this topic being an involving phenomenon, phenomenon, right? It appears throughout history to what society can handle and comprehend at that given time. It gets more advanced in its appearance and technology as we ourselves get more uh, technologically advanced. Early reports start out as simple balls of light, and then we move on to flying chariots, then to crosses in the sky. Eventually, we land at flying airships to modern-day reports now of UFOs. But didn't you say earlier the airship reports came during the time when fake news was running rampant? Yes, I did. But let's look at it this way. With these reports, we can get an early glimpse of unbiased reports of this phenomenon. I said it right this time. (laughs) You're two Two for five. five. These reports did come from a time when yellow journalism was popular. Sure, some of them could be total BS, but they also come from a time when science was open to the idea of extraterrestrial life and was a booming field and growing itself. Like that Italian guy that mapped out the canals on Mars with one of them old-timey telescopes and developed the theory that Mars had an advanced civilization, which then later influenced H.G. Wells to write War of the Worlds, 
And then there was no need for a cover-up. There was no space race, no Cold War, no FBI, no CIA, and the military didn't have the notion or the means to weaponize the technology. So I think it makes a good case, you know, to say that, you know, this phenomenon during that time was something more than just a hoax. Um, there was, you know, mm-hmm. we weren't in that era when we're like, oh, shit, extraterrestrials, we need to weaponize that shit. Like, people were realistically experiencing these events. Nice. Huh. Yeah. Anyways, November 23rd, <laughs> 1896. A story originally reported by the San Francisco Chronicle was picked up by many newspapers across the United States under various headlines such as All in the Air, a mysterious airship puzzles the people of California. And Airship, a fact? A son of Maine has mastered the secret. How about An airship, residents of Sacramento, California are treated to a rare sight. And coming in the rear with a lame horse. Aerial navigation and reality. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be great with that science. That science. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Eeyore. <laughs> such, a lame, so, such a lame tagline. Like, who the fuck names it that? Like, no one's going to listen to that. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, like, every, everybody else was like, oh, shit, that was a good... Man, I should have thought of that. And they're like... Let's pump up that title, and then this one's just like, all right, keep it basic, bitch. Going on. (laughs) (laughs) So the newspapers all reported the same general story. About 1 o'clock Monday morning, inhabitants of Sacramento, who were astir at the hour, uh, claimed to have seen an airship passing rapidly over the city. Some merely said they saw a bright light, while others went so far as to say they saw a cigar, right? Think about modern-day UFO reports. Mm-hmm. a cigar-shaped flying machine, and heard human voices in it. The residents of Oakland also say they saw the same sight a, f- a few nights later on November 23, um, 1896. Presumably in hopes of disluding their readers of the notion that the story was simply a hoax, most of the newspapers also included the following quote from the, you know, the supposed inventor's attorney, George D. Collins. It is perfectly true that there is at last a successful airship in existence that California will have the honor of bringing it before the world. I have known of the affair for some time, I do declare, and I am acting as attorney for the inventor. He is a very wealthy man who has been studying the subject of flying machines for 15 years and who came here seven years ago from the state of Maine in order to be able to perfect his ideas away from the eyes of other inventors. During the last five years, he was spent at least $100,000 on his work. He has not yet secured his patent, but his application is now in Washington. I cannot say about the machine he has perfected, because he is my client, and besides, he fears that the application will be stolen from the patent office if people come to know of it about his invention is practicable. I saw that machine last week at the inventor's invitation. It's made of mental... Mental? It is made of metal. It is about 150 feet long and is built to carry 15 people. There were no motive. There was no motive power, so I could see. Certainly no steam. It is built on the aeroplane system and has two canvases, wings, 18 feet wide, and a rudder shaped like a bird's tail. The inventor climbed into the machine, and after he had been moving about the mechanism a moment, I saw the thing begin to ascend from the earth very gently. The wings flapped slowly as it rose, and then a little faster as it became to move against the wind. 
The following day, November 24th, 1896, the Bismarck Daily Tribune offered additional information about uh, the inventor and the latest test flight, again uh, quoting Attorney Collins. The inventor of the mysterious airship, which has been puzzling local scientists and others for the last week, is believed to be one Dr. E.H. Benjamin, an alleged dentist who occupied rooms in Ellis Street Lodging House for the last two years. But so far, he has successfully evaded all attempts to discover his identity. His attorney, Collins, when seen impressed to tell more about the machine and its inventor, said, This morning, the inventor came to my office in the Crocker Building and told me he had tested the merits of the ship in last night's storm with the greatest success. He hovered over seal rocks for a full ten minutes and then played his searchlights on the seals themselves. Dennis by day, Batman by night. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> Bruce Wayne with all that money. Yeah. Get me the bat dirigible, Alfred. <laughs> April 3rd, 1897, the Philadelphia Inquirer reported another sighting. The mysterious airship still continues to show itself in the West. It was first seen in California and has now been reaching Kansas. With rare modesty, it only makes its appearance at night. And then, but little of it's visible, except for the lights that are on the board of it. <laughs> the fact that the scores of people who have seen it at different times all agree in descriptions which they furnish is certainly something in favor of the truth of the story. As the inventor appears to be working his way east, we, in its latitude, may soon have the opportunity to see adding to the numbers of observers. The Dallas Morning News published an article on April 8th titled, Strange Objects Seen and There Shall Be Signs Seen in the Heavens. Better. Soon a bright light was seen at the front of the objects, which seemed to be thrown out in different directions. Mr. Thrumball called the number of people who watched the strange shadow um, object for a long time and are confident it is the mysterious airship seen at so many places during the past few weeks. It out, it's, its outlines were um, indistinct, but a light was thrown out from the front, and at times there were flashes of lights along the sides. It moved swiftly backwards and forwards, sank almost to the ground just north of the city, and then rose straight up into the air at great speeds, and disappeared into the darkness of the night. So again, this was written in like 1896, but yeah. pretty much matched it up 100% to modern <laughs> UFO accounts. I'm not saying it was aliens, but it's aliens. April 14th, 1897, uh, the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer provided a diff- uh, additional information about the inventor and possibly of the airship being openly displayed. And now comes the story that the directors of the Trans-Mississippi Exposition to be held at Omaha have received a communication from a man who declares that he has invented an airship and that he will disclose his identity and come to the front of it if the directors will guarantee him 870,000 square feet of space. He declares that the ship will carry 20 people to a height of from 10 to 20 fucking thousand feet! Omaha, that's uh, Dobbs territory. Yeah. Yeah. On April 15th, the Dallas Morning News described a reappearance of the mysterious airship over Denton County, Texas, by at least two credible, air quote, persons (laughs) 
whose reputation for <laughs> truthfulness uh, can uh, not be assailed. This article contained more details than nearly any uh, published previously. Yeah, at first I thought it was a meteor, but upon closer look, discovered this unknown object is almost stationary, and focusing my binoculars on it, I discovered it was moving slowly in the southeasterly sky. At this slow rate of speed, the ship continued its course for a few minutes, and then, with almost a jump, it started off at a terrific rate and disappeared in the southeast, remaining in range of my vision about 20 minutes. Well, I first ascertained the character of the object, floated about half a mile above the earth, and then it seemed to be only about 50 feet long, of a cigar shape with two great mugs thrust out from each side. A broad tail or steering sail behind it, and a long beak or blade resembling the cut water on a ship in front. At the point where the searchlight threw its rays far into the night ahead, beside which even the luminosity of the moon paled. A row of windows along the side gave out smaller lights, the source of it which must have been stored electricity, as there wasn't no smoke. As well as I could see, and I could see very plainly coming from the ship, nor was there ever a sign of smokestacks. Two days later, on April 17th, the Dallas Morning News reported another detailed account of a mysterious airship, this time in Paris, Texas, not France, but Texas, about a hundred miles away from Denton County. According to Mr. J.A. Black, the night watchman at the Paris Oil and Cotton Company's plant, he said he was tangled up and making his usual rounds around the mill yesterday morning about 2 o'clock when he observed a faint but luminous object in the northeast sky. First, he thought it to be a meteor of gigantic proportions, and its speed appeared equal to such a planetary tramp. I wonder what that means. Hmm. As it came near, this idea was quickly dispelled. He ran to the cabin of the colored man by the name, well, <laughs> of Jim Smith. And together, they viewed the aerial monster as it approached nearer. From what appeared to be at first a luminous cloud, there was now clearly outlined a monster airship. Both he and Smith were hail spellbound by the sight. The ship had sails or wings outstretched on both ends, and there's a large rotating fan projecting from the sails at an angle of, oh, about 45 degrees, and one in the front being elevated, which the one at the rear was depressed, somewhat resembling the tail of a bird. They could only gain a faint idea of its accurate size, but think it must have been about 200 feet long, the sails or wings constituting nine-tenths of the whole size. They said a cigar-shaped cabin was apparently suspended in the midst of the sails, and it was evident that the fans were being propelled by some power or force located inside the cabin. The noise of the propelling machinery was plainly heard as a ship sailed over top of him. He said his dog was with him when the aircraft first was discovered, and he immediately set up an unearthly moaning, which he continued until the curious visitor was completely lost in view. Smith said the visibility become infected, affected, and being naturally superstitious, lost no time in falling to his knees and offering up a prayer for the safety of himself and his family to the good Lord. Smith even now says the airship was none other than the return of Noah's Ark, with wings like attached to the sides and toward the Mississippi bottoms. 
its mission being to save the colored folks from the perils of the overflow in that section of Texas. Hmm. Huh. Well, that was a lot. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> you wrote it, <laughs> Shit's heavy. <laughs> yeah. All right. So in the... Uh, Great Aerial Wanderer. Mr. C.L. McLaney claims to have spoken with an engineer and pilot who had been compelled to come to the ground to make some repairs on the machinery. The airship consists of a cigar-shaped body about 60 feet in length, to which is attached to two immense aeroplanes. And the motive power is an immense wheel at each end, in appearance much like a metallic windmill. It's driven by an immense electric engine, which derives its power stored into batteries. The crew reported that they have been making an experimental trip to comply with the contract with certain capitalists of New York who were backing them. They're confident that they have achieved a great success in that short time, and the navigation of the airship will be an assured fact. They refuse to have their machinery critically inspected and refuse to talk further as to their plans for the future. They rapidly made the necessary repairs, boarded the ship, and bid it adieu to the astonished crowd assembled. The ship gently rose to the air and sailed off into southwesterly directions. The article headlined uh, C.G. Williams Solid included a similar description of an airship and conversation with the crew who were also engaged in a secretive business venture. Oddly enough, the crew had not landed for repairs, but rather for the altogether earthly purpose of mailing some letters. <laughs> Aha! The mail committee. Yeah. yeah. Articles from the April 19th, 1897 Dallas Morning News are simply spectacular. They take us from mysterious airships to an unknown continent, and finally, the extraterrestrials themselves. In A Judge Sees It! Judge Loves tells of his conversation with an airship crew he came across while on a fishing trip. The judge offered a common description of the craft, adding it was capable of, sp- of speeds of 250 miles an hour before recounting what he was told by the five peculiarly dressed men. We live in the regions of the North Pole. Contrary to the general belief, there is a large body of land beyond the polar seas, containing about 250 square miles of territory. The first time this land was visited by human beings, so far as we know, was when the ten tribes of Israel found their way there after the captivity and dispersion of the Jews. According to tradition, they were attempting to cross Bering Straits and were carried by a floating iceberg and landed on the shores of the North Pole land. The climate there, while at that time cold, was prevented from being uninhabitable by the influence of the Gulf Stream, which, after flowing the hundreds of miles, many fathoms under the surface of the sea in that region, after, <laughs> after flowing for hundreds of miles, many fathoms under the surface of the sea in that region, 
came to the surface and flows entirely round the continent of the North Pole land. You wonder how I speak English? Well, the polar expedition of Sir Hugh Willoughby in 1553, who, with his crew, was supposed to have been lost, as a matter of fact, succeeded in reaching the North Pole land. The ship had been so wrecked and broken up by the voyage that Sir Willoughby and his crew were unwilling to risk a return trip. Therefore, they remained at the North Pole land. In the early part of 1846, Sir John Franklin's crew reached the North Pole land. Sir John, having died near what is now called Lady Franklin Bay, Sir John's crew remained. As to return was impossible, the ship being crushed between two icebergs 100 miles from the North Pole land to which they went in boats. In addition to the foregoing, various parties in the United States and Europe from time to time reach this land in a helpless condition. Maybe you shouldn't fucking travel there. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, we have a splendid country now. You know how buildings are heated by steam? Well, we have pipes through which the steam is conveyed all over the inhabitable part of the country, and the soil is kept at such a temperature that we can produce all the fruits of the temperate zone and some of the fruits of the tropics. <laughs> the country is lighted by electricity during the six months of night. We have no timber and no coal. Water, as you know, is composed of two parts of hydrogen and one part oxygen. Nerd. The oxygen burns very rapidly, giving out great heat. Now, by means of a chemical process, we take an iceberg, separate the hydrogen from the oxygen, and use the latter for fuel and lights. For lack of timber, we cannot build ships or trains, therefore we will lead to the invention of the airship. Now let's turn our attention to the final Dallas Morning News article of the same day. A windmill demolishes it. Yeah, about 6 o'clock this morning, the early risers of Aurora were astonished at the sudden appearance of the airship, which has been sailing through the country. It was traveling due north and much nearer to the earth than ever before. Eventually, some of the machinery was out of order, for what was making the speed of only about 10 or 12 miles an hour, and gradually setting toward the earth. It sailed directly over the public square, and when it reached the north part of a town, it collided with the tower of Judge Proctor's windmill. It went into pieces with a terrific explosion, scattering debris, <laughs> debris over the several acres of ground, wrecking the windmill and the water tank and destroying the judge's flower garden. The pilot of the ship is supposed to have been only on board, and while his remains are badly disfigured, enough of the original has been picked up to show what that he wasn't the inhabitant of this world. Junior? Junior T.J. Weems, United States Signal Service Officer at this place and an authority on astronomy, give it his opinion that he was a native of the planet Mars. Papers found on his person, evidently the records of his travels, are written in some unknown hieroglyphics and cannot be deciphered. The ship was too badly wrecked to form any conclusion as to its construction or motive power. It was built out of an unknown metal resembling somewhat of a mixture of aluminium and silver, and it must have weighed several tons. The tower is full of people day to day who are viewing the wreck, gathering specimens of the strange metal from the debris. The pilot's funeral will take place at noon tomorrow. So this is probably like my number one favorite ancient alien story. And it was actually featured on the show in season two. 
and mm-hmm. um, the 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 actual well um, that were like mm-hmm. part of the space you know space crash you know happened a, a piece of that spacecraft is still in there and um, after the judge passed away this other family came in and bought that property and um, the well was so deep that they could never actually like pull anything out of it. But uh, the family that lived on that farm, um, they all had like really bad cases of rheumatoid uh, rheumatoid arthritis to where like their hands were disfigured, like their Hmm. fingernails were like all gnarly looking. Um, They looked like they had radiation poisoning because like pieces of their skin were like falling off. And, you know, this was like in the, the early like 30s and 40s. So by the time that, you know, the son of the farmer who bought it from the judge, he got so freaked out by his dad's condition. And, you know, the science back then, like there was no way to really test like why the rheumatoid arthritis was, you know, causing the the severe condition that it was that they decided just to cement up the well so that like now nobody can actually go in and try to pull pieces out and figure out what's down there. But the the town made such a big deal about it that they actually gave the the dead pilot a, a headstone in the cemetery and, and like everybody in town knew where it was at. So up until like the mid eighties, um, you could actually go to this town, you could go to the cemetery, you could actually see where like, you know, the, the headstone and the grave was. And then there were in uh, in the, the the late eighties they, they kept seeing these reports of uh, like men in black in town, and uh, nobody like really thought anything of it. Like you know it's weird, but whatever. Well, so they started to do research um, on this piece because you know this is a really great example of before Roswell. Like we always think of Roswell as like the first you know alien crash, but no. We actually have a documented crash before Roswell in Texas. There's a buried body. Um, so one of the guys got um, oh, what do you what do you call it? that that uh, uh, radar scanner thing that a you boner. know penetrates the ground? So ground penetrating radar. Yeah, that thing, right? <laughs> Is that really what it's called? <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so they, they they got the machine out and they um they were going over the hole like where the cuz the the tombstone disappeared but everybody remembered it was right next to this tree so they're like fuck we'll do it around the tree um there were reports that there was a piece of a metal that was next to the pilot and so they buried that with them so when they did the ground penetrating radar they found the depression of where the grave was but the grave had actually been emptied so there was actually no body in it um, there was no metal in it. There was just a impression of where a four foot hole, you know, like a four foot long hole was dug. Um, you know, so it matches up to the size of what the alien was, but it's like maybe the men in black or somebody from the government caught on and they wanted whatever that metal was that was buried with hmm. the body. And so they goinked the alien out. Wait a second. This is in Texas, right? You said that? Yeah. Okay. So this story takes place in Aurora, Texas. Yeah. Okay, I have this story saved on a document called Random uh, Repository of just random stories I want to get to eventually. Um, This is from RoadsideAmerica.com. Let me just read this real quick. and It'll probably recant a lot of what you just said. Fuck it. Let's do it. Aurora Cemetery may contain the most important grave in the world, or it may simply be that historical markers in Texas are more open-minded than those in other states. 
Whatever the reason, the official plaque outside this graveyard does mention that it might contain the grave of a pilot of a spaceship that crashed nearby on April 17, 1897. Newspaper accounts at the time reported that the alien craft hit a windmill and was torn to pieces along with the occupant. A 1986 movie, Aurora Encounter, recreates a tale. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. In 1972, scientists wanted to dig up the grave, but were blocked by the Cemetery Association because exhumations can only be authorized by next of kin. Everyone agrees that the tombstone, if there ever was one, is gone now, but there's nothing to see here except for the plaque, though there's a consolation grave marker, if you can find it, for Loretta, the world's talking bird. (laughs) (laughs) In 2010, an ad hoc tombstone with a UFO scratched into it, mysteriously appeared in the cemetery, but it vanished just as mysteriously two years later in 2012. The historical marker also mentions that Aurora was struck by an epidemic of crop failure and bypassed by the railroad. No connection is made directly between these calamities and the decomposing body of an alien in the town boneyard, but we suspect that it has omission just to avoid a panic, because historical markers always will tell the truth. The historical marker's full text. Aurora Cemetery. The oldest known graves here, dating back as early as the 1860s, are those of Randall and Rowlett families. Finnis Dudley Bowcamp, from 1825 to 1893, a Confederate veteran from Mississippi, donated, donated the three-acre site to the newly formed Aurora Lodge, number, 47, number 479, Air Force and AM, and in 1877. For many years, this community burial ground was known as the Masonic Cemetery. Bo Camp, his wife Caroline, 1829 to 1915, and the others in their family. An epidemic which struck the village in 1891 added hundreds of graves to the plot. Called spotted fever by the settlers, this disease is now thought to be a form of meningitis. Located in Aurora Cemetery is the gravestone of the infant Nellie Burris, 1891-1893, with its often quoted epitaph, As I was soon done, I didn't know why I was begun. This site also is well known because of the legend of a spaceship crash nearby in 1897, and the pilot killed in the crash was buried here. Struck by epidemic and crop failure and bypassed by the railroad, the original town of Aurora almost disappeared. But the cemetery remains in use with over 800 graves, veterans of the Civil War, World Wars I and II, and the Korean and veteran Vietnam conflicts are entered here. Wow, interesting. Yeah, Yeah, pretty wild. I've had that story tucked away in there for two years. (laughs) I just haven't gotten around to researching it more. But interesting, man. Yeah, I wonder if any of uh, my in-laws that live down there may know anything about that. We should ask. Yeah, we definitely should, man. Yeah. So uh, other notable sightings. Um, You know, I I told Dob earlier in the week that, uh, you know, this episode was all for him. So I'm going to I'm going to dedicate this to old Dobzy in more way than one, because on February 2nd, 1897, the Omaha Bee reported an airship sighting over Hastings, Nebraska. And on the previous day, a huge canoe-shaped spaceship like nothing seen before approaches the small Nebraska town at incredible speeds. 
Its brilliant headlights dazzled onlookers who stand open-mouthed before the approach of the mysterious craft. It suddenly stops in midair, moves abruptly up, then down, sideways, forwards, <laughs> backwards, forwards and backwards at will in defiance of all known laws of physics. Some viewers believe they can hear a murmur of a power source, and others detect the voices, even of uh, the of voices, even the laughter of the airship's passengers. All agree that there is a red light on the stern of the ship and a row of three lights on either side, and a dim green light that is seen by some. The lights dim and glare, and in their reflection, the earthlings the earthlings can make out the silhouette of four large wings two on either side of the ship's massive bodies. Suddenly, the craft shoots upwards and disappears toward the horizon at incredible speeds. An account by Alexander Hamilton of Leroy, Kansas, so back in our home state here, (laughs) supposedly occurred around April 19, 1897, and was published in the Yates Center's Farmer Advocate on April 23rd. Hamilton and his son and a tenant witnessed an airship hovering over the cattle pen. Upon closer examination, the witness realized that a red cable from the airship had lassoed a heifer, but had also become entangled in the pen's fence. After trying unsuccessfully to free the heifer, Hamilton cut loose a portion of the fence, then stood in amazement to see the ship, the cow, all rise slowly and sail off. Some have suggested that this was uh, the earliest report of cattle mutilations. However, in 1982, UFO researcher Jerome Clark debunked this story and confirmed via interviews in Hamilton's own Alpha David that the story was a successful attempt to win a Liars Club competition to create the most outlandish tall tale. Well, holy bejeebas. Pretty nuts. Yeah, man. Airships, huh? Yeah. (laughs) So... You know what's funny is it seems like UFO sightings always relate somewhat to the times. So it just goes to show that I think in the 1890s, the 1880s even, you know, dirigibles were one of the first things that we'd see flying around and they were probably pretty alien to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, that could be a huge part of the sightings there, just seeing these giant airships that were man-made flying around just causing mass hysteria. Right. Kind of similar to the way that, you know, early comic books would do with flying saucers and how that entered the zeitgeist, <coughs> zeitgeist and all of a sudden everybody's seeing flying saucers everywhere. Mm-hmm. Or it could have easily been some kind of steampunk airship UFO that was just, you know, about 10 years early than what we were expecting it to be. Yeah. You know, there are some people that believe that uh, it, uh, the airship phenomenon is part of a breakaway civilization, and so uh-huh. that's the direction that they went. And, you know, so that report of them living in the North Pole or, you know, uh, this breakaway civilization in Antarctica and the Nazis stumbled across it, or, I mean, maybe it's like a colony of aliens, and this is the technology they use to get around. So, Yeah, I mean, could be. I think there's a lot of that uh, history wrapped up in Bioshock Infinite, you know, mm-hmm. the whole Sky City and stuff like that. That's not yeah. the first time I've ever heard the idea of there being Sky Civilization, so. Cloud oh, yeah. City and Star Wars, what up? Oh, yeah, very true. Hell, and then also um, in Altered Carbon, you know, that's mm-hmm. the, the goal is to get way up there, so. 
And if you think about like ancient alien reports of like flying chariots, so if you saw like, you know, an airship, it's like a balloon with a basket. So, I mean, that would be your way of describing it would be a chariot. You would have no other, you know, words in your repertoire to say, you know, this is a UFO. You would say, oh, fuck, it's a flying chariot, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what else do you call it without knowing exactly what it was? So. Yeah, that's True it. That. That's all that's I got. It. Damn, interesting, man. Huh? Yeah, that's quite. <laughs> that's crazy. That's crazy, crazy how that related back to that story about Aurora, Texas, man. I wasn't yeah. even paying attention halfway through it to you know exactly what that was till the very end, and it's just like holy shit. <laughs> I know this story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was a really big to do whenever um, they wanted to originally move the headstone because a lot of people in Texas were like, "Hell no, you can't move that. There's a bona fide alien buried there," but. You know, as most things go, the city officials were like, yeah, fuck you. There's no alien there. Yeah. Well, that's because the government came in and took it. So Right. <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, cool. Good show, boys. Good show. Yeah. Hell yeah. All right. The I next one's up. all on you, bud. Yeah, I'll do the heavy lifting for next time. Don't yeah. you worry. Don't you worry your pretty little head. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Steve, what do you want to plug, man? Check out our Facebook, Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. Check out the Instagram, PXL Paranormal. And uh, go there for all the pictures and stuff we post and all that jazz. And that's it for me. Cool. Awesome. Check out the rest of the shows on the Pixelated Sausage Network. Check out Mark Solo Show, Pixelated Sausage, and Amazingly Baca. Attack the Backlog on YouTube. And then also 13 Nightmares should be making its triumphant return tomorrow from when you get this episode. Should be dropping on the 10th of October. So keep your eye holes peeled for that. Hell yeah, dude. Yeah. Preston, what do you got, man? Well, you know, since you all got our special message from Joe Bob earlier in the show, you follow his advice, go over to BigDobsBeardBomb.com and use that promo code that he gave you. And then if your hair is looking like a blimp, like the Goodyear or maybe like a, you know, alien dirigible, go to www.CutsByColin.com and uh, book yourself an appointment today and ask for the Razzle Dazzle and tell them the boys from Pixelated Paranormal sent you. Hell Yeah. And then make your way down to CD Tray Post at Pawnee and Seneca. Say hello to our friend Leslie and her gang down there. And then check out Fast Print down at Harry and Rock Road. Cool. Otherwise, guys, I think that's it. Anything else? No. That's it. All right. Cool. And with that, I say cheers to the weird shit in the world and to those of us that love to talk about it. Stay spooky and stay on the Paranormal Highway. The cast at Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.